Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now, Lisa Bramwitz and Tom Keen on the equity markets with Sam Stovall. And Sam, I've got to start where we were with Matt O'Connor of Deutsche Bank. Thank you, Doug Cass, for emailing in a very sharp note where Doug Cass, almost trading Sam, would say the banks have come awfully far, awfully fast. Sam Stovall, that right now all love the banks. Do they, Sam? Is it too far too fast for the banks? Well, I think that we are seeing uh, better numbers expected for this fourth quarter. Uh, diversified banks were expected to be a uh, down 22% in that fourth quarter earnings, now off only 176 So things are looking to get a little better. Regional banks were supposed to be down 135 now less than 125 and things really haven't even gotten started yet. So uh, Basically, where there is a vacuum of valuations is where investors yeah, well are most likely drawn. Yeah, well, well said. Uh, the other idea, Sam Stovall, that I think you've got so many decades of experience on is that corporations and CEOs, they adjust to the cards that have been dealt. Do you anticipate a lot of adjustment by companies in this year that will surprise with better margins down the income statement? Well, I think you're right that the companies basically say we don't like the uncertainty uh, and whatever cards are dealt us, we will work around them. Uh, that's why what's interesting is that every Democratic president since Woodrow Wilson has come into power uh, backed by a solidly Democratic Congress. Uh, yet with that, we've seen the market do very well in the first year of those six presidents, um, up more than 11%. And if you go back to including the Russell 2000, they've been up 16% in the first year of a president's term in office, rising in eight of eight times. Well, but this is a very different year, and it comes on the heels of an incredibly unique dynamic. There's a question, how do you parse out the froth from the reality when you look at some of these earnings expectations that are baked into valuations? Well, I think right now the... Uh, Earnings expectations need to improve. Right now, we're looking at sub $170 earnings for the S&P 500, which is causing the S&P to be trading at a 44% premium to its 20-year average <clears throat> NTM or next 12-month P.E. ratio. I think we're going to need to see earnings that are approaching um, $200 a share in order to bring down the P.E. from that 23-plus to something closer to 18 or so. So the other issue, the other aspect that's been influencing equities this, uh, this week, this month, this year, has been the retail price setters. And I've really been struck by statistics showing that, for example, on Monday, retail traders accounted for a fifth of all equity trading. If you just look at the top six most active stocks, which were penny stocks, how does this affect your investment thesis, if at all? Does it, does it sort of create a flag for you that there's something amiss? Well, yes, it does. Actually, I also uh, anecdotally got phone calls from two nieces who have never invested before who uh -oh. now want to invest. <laughs> so, you know, it is, is that like Top. Bernard Baruch and Joe Kennedy uh, looking to get advice <laughs> from their, their boot black? So, 
Uh, yeah, that's a concern. When you also see the Russell 2000 trading yeah. 37% above its 200-day moving average, the highest on record, uh, that too is a concern that the market is in need of a digestion yeah. of gains. What you are getting here, folks, on radio and television is the Stovall Clinic. What Sam Stovall just said there about what we do with Democratic President, House, and Senate is textbook looking at our history. Sam, what's our trap right now of looking at too much history and not the present of this modern market? Well, I always like to say that history is a great guide, but it's never gospel. Uh, that even though, as Mark Twain once said, it might frequently rhyme, like the singer of the national anthem, sometimes it forgets the words. So you really do have to overlay econ- um, historical pro- um, tendencies with economic projections, fundamental forecasts, and technical considerations. And right now, the trend is your friend. Uh, and while we are likely due for some sort of a pullback, one occurs every nine months, uh, I still think that we are headed higher for the full year. Okay, we're heading higher for the full year. Are you going to be like Ben Laidler at Tara Hudson and give me a double-digit number? I heard that with your history back to Woodrow Wilson. I know your great-grandfather was covering the street back then. But, Sam, are you going to go all double-digit on me? Uh, no. Uh, high single-digit. I call myself a bull, but with a lowercase b. Um, 4080 is our year-end target for the S&P 500. We were talking about how the hope for a better future is paid with trillions of dollars of stimulus. How much is your thesis, is your prediction for year-end predicated on this idea of at least $2 trillion of additional fiscal support? Well, I think fiscal support is already baked in largely to the market. Uh, Expectations are that we will come. I mean, I read Greg Valieri as well on a daily basis, and I I believe that I'm going to be looking for uh, Biden going big when he announces tonight. Uh, So I believe that that is factored in. And we're starting to see the interest rates and inflationary worries start to creep higher as a result of that. Um, And now we're looking at a dichotomy between our economists and our technicians as to how high interest rates go. Uh, So it should lead to some very interesting trading. But I think the stimulus is important to ensure we have a strong takeoff in the second half. And Sam, before we let you go, I'd love to get your take on the rotation trade, this idea that investors are going further into the banks, into other cyclicals and away on the margins from big tech. Do you think that that has legs or do you think that that's been made too much of? Uh, No, absolutely it has legs. Uh, I published my barbell portfolio, which looks at those sub-industries that were the 10 best and the 10 worst from the prior calendar year. Um, And the outperformance typically has been anywhere from 200 to 400 basis points, whether you look at the best or the worst. Right now, the bottom 10 sub-industry constituents Mm -hmm. are up 8%, whereas the market itself is up 1.6. And chances are this ends up continuing through 2021. Sam Stovall, just wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Just really, really appreciate it. Greg Vallier now with AGF. Greg, what will be the price to those 10 Republicans? Can you calculate the price to them in the primaries of 2022? 
Yeah, I think some of them are going to lose in their primaries. I think Liz Cheney, though, has pretty decent support in the House, Tom. I wouldn't predict her, her downfall, but some of her colleagues might pay a price. Your note this morning, Sam Stovall, thank you for mentioning that. Folks, we protect the copyright of our note. Lisa and I are not going to send it out to you. Go to AGF to see Valier's note. Greg, you link pardons and the dynamics for this president towards the Senate votes beginning the 19th. Link those two. Sure. If there was a vote today, the Senate would vote to acquit. I don't see the 17 votes necessary. However, we've got a week to go. So what do we get in the next week? Are there more disclosures about who was behind the, the riots, who was complicit? Are there more uh, pardons? Uh, I think that uh, events in the next week or so will be really crucial. And it's happening in tandem with efforts to uh, draft a new fiscal stimulus bill. Joe Biden planning to unveil that today at 7.15 p.m. Eastern time. The price tag $2 trillion, $2.2 trillion, the expectation that Republicans will sign off on it. How realistic, Greg, is this bipartisanship that people are expecting? I think it is for this bill, Lisa. Then I would get concerned about whether they can get a lot more. I mean, the plan right now is to go for go big. I would say $2 trillion or something close to it tonight is, is big. Uh, and then the plan is to wait and come up with another bill on infrastructure, green jobs, all that stuff later in the spring. That second bill could be difficult. On this one, I think that Biden will prevail, and I think it's a story the bond market has to worry about. One story that people have been saying is that the impeachment, the turmoil in Washington, D.C., has unified Congress, has unified Republicans and Democrats to some degree to get some sort of bipartisanship. Do you think that's really an accurate representation? Not necessarily. I think both parties are still in great disagreement. It's a weird, surreal uh, climate right now in Washington. I went for a long run yesterday, and it's an armed camp in downtown Washington, and it's going to stay that way for a while. Yeah, Greg, I went for a long run yesterday, too. (laughs) (laughs) To get a new iPhone. (laughs) No, actually, it was a marginal cocktail. Uh, Greg, when we look at this drama and we move forward, there is a changing from McConnell to Schumer. Mm-hmm. Color that change. What, what's the backstory there? Well, they're both very partisan. They both know how to deal. I think, obviously, they have different priorities. And I think a major one is that Schumer really feels strongly about infrastructure. I mean, he's had to drive on the BQE and the LIE, and he knows you need more money spent on infrastructure. I think that'll be a priority. A lot of other things Schumer will place a big uh, priority on, like a big increase in minimum wage. I think that comes fairly soon. So they're different, but I think they'll, they'll yeah. at least superficially get a lot. The big relationship Tom, is the relationship between McConnell and Biden. Okay, I'll go with that. But if your $2.2 trillion, as you published today, is a top end on the Biden stimulus tonight, do you have a figure on following infrastructure? Do we get out to the kind of support that the liberal economist Claudia Sam mentions? Oh, that comes in the second bill in the spring. It, you, they could talk about a half a trillion or more on infrastructure. You know, it, it, you've got Republicans who have now found religion on the deficit. You can be sure of that. But you've got the bond market that sends yields quite a bit higher. I, I think we just can't spend an, an unlimited amount of money or the markets may rebel. This is kind of a, a sensitive question, Greg, uh, but based on your conversations with your clients, typically big business has skewed Republican, has hewed more to the policies of Republicans. Who's the party of the C-suite right now? 
good That's a question. really, really, really intriguing question. question. Yeah. I, I think I now you've got a lot of businesses that were aghast at what happened last week. They were aghast at Republicans refusing to accept the results of the election. So I think for now at least, a lot of businesses are going to view Republicans as being in the doghouse. All right. So Republicans in the doghouse, and we've seen that in terms of campaign contributions. What does that mean in terms of policy and where they will work with Republicans and where they will work with uh, Democrats? I think eventually we do get deals. I I think that it it will come. But we're still in the kumbaya phase where everybody is going to talk during the inauguration about, you know, working together. It never, ever winds up that way. And I think there will be huge differences over spending. And then the issue we haven't talked about is taxes. I I think by mid-spring, the Ways and Means Committee is going to be putting together a tax bill, and it's going to be a bill the markets don't like. Greg, thank you so much. I greatly appreciate You know, what's great about this, folks, is Lisa and I are still in the kumbaya phase. Oh, yeah? From so our, for each other or for 2021? Well, we'll see. Greg Vallier with us with AGF <laughs> the answer uh, this is yes. morning. A really, really smart note. Francis Donald, Manulife Investment Management, Global Chief Economist uh, and Global Head of Macro Strategy joining us now. Francis, your first take on this really disappointing jobs report. Yeah, you know, For the last couple of months, um, when we've had bad data, we've struggled to make the point that it mattered for markets because bad data just meant more fiscal stimulus and who cares because on the second half of 2021, the economy is going to reaccelerate. But this number to me speaks to a tipping point in that narrative. You know, we're not seeing rates surge following this terrible, terrible number implying we're going to get a greater fiscal spend. What we're looking at here is a deepening of the crisis, a second economic wave that's coming through. And let's remember, there's a lot to say about fiscal. But what is Powell thinking as he looks at this number? He is speaking later today. What is he seeing? Global economies heading back into lockdown in Europe. In Asia, I'm up here in Canada. I have a curfew for the first time since I was 14 years old. He's looking at some members of the Fed talk about tapering, and he has 10 million Americans who are unemployed relative to February and a surge in jobless claims. It's not bad news is good news anymore. It's bad news reflecting really painful couple months ahead for the economy. And can you elaborate a little bit on this tipping point, Francis, as you called it? Is it a tipping point for markets where bad news is bad news? Or is it a tipping point for the economy where each of these weekly initial jobless claims suddenly has import beyond what it did, say, a month ago? Well, first and foremost, for the economy, in my view, the first half of 2021 is going to look very rough. It's not going to be a formal recession just because the year-over-year comps don't get us there. But in December, the U.S. lost 140,000 jobs. That's recessionary territory. We are going to see a lot of weakness in the economy in the first few months. Those city economic surprise indexes are going to fall. And I struggle to see how the Federal Reserve allows rates to climb, even if it's gradual in this type of environment. This is not the time to be risking gradually raising rates. They have to keep things relatively supplanted. And if they don't, I really do worry about some form of taper tantrum, even if it's mini. What is the most efficient use of stimulus? What are the lessons you've learned, Francis Donald, from support in Canada or support in Europe? 
So first and foremost, you do have to plug the hole. Now, the best types of support are those that make sure people don't actually leave their jobs. So we're talking about wage supplements, for example. This was really, really successful in Germany. You also, of course, have to think longer term. We've been thinking a lot more longer term about infrastructure spending. And how do we raise inflation and how do we get potential GDP higher? But I suspect we need to head back into an area where we're talking about providing immediate and urgent support. Google food lines. You're going to see people around the block over and over. This is still a very okay. urgent situation. Just because of time, I don't mean to interrupt, but this is really, really, really important. With the politics and the new calculus in Washington, is there a change in Lockean individualism in America where we're going to become more like Canada, your Canada, we're going to become more like Europe and provide the income substitution and replacement that Jonathan Farrow speaks of? Well, we're heading towards redistributive policies. You are likely going to see more demand for that. And I heard Lisa earlier say something really critical. Watch stimulus, not for the headline number, but what it's being spent on. What it's being spent on is what will drive your growth and inflation over the longer term. And redistributive policies have a lot of merits to them, but they're not necessarily as inflationary as other types of spending. So let's just be cautious when we're analyzing fiscal, not just the headline, but what's under the surface as well. Francis Donald of Menulife Asset Management, thank you so much for being with us on this day. Right now, in anticipating this, Jeffrey Curry of Goldman Sachs on the surge in oil. Jeff, many people are modeling out this is the top end of the range. Can you model a breakout of oil through 60? Well, I, I, you have all of the telltale signs of a structural bull market at play here. You know, not only do you have oil, you know, charging towards $60 a barrel, you have metals prices back to super cycle era levels, you have grains exploding, um, you have global liquidity increasing tremendously. At the exact same time, you look at the dollar, it's broken multi-year trend lines going back to 2011. So, you know, when we think about the potential for a macro repricing across the commodity complex, this is the highest it's been in well over a decade. So we think there's a lot of upside risk, not only to oil, but the entire commodity complex. You know, I want to talk about Jurgen's wonderful new book, The New Map. For a pro like you, Jeff Curry, it's all old news. You probably helped Jurgen write it. But for the rest of us, it's overwhelming, the dynamics of U.S. production of oil. Are we at risk in the new map that Joe Biden is writing? No, when we, when we think about uh, the current environment, and particularly given the ESG overlay, um, there's only really two sources of oil that can be brought on quickly to meet the potential deficits that we expect over the course of the next 12 to, to 24 months, and that's the Middle East and the United States. So it's going to be a very important part of that supply mixture. Now, when we think about um, you know, the potential for Iran coming back with the Biden administration. One, Iran has probably fallen down the policy agenda somewhat. But more importantly, um, we expect there to be room for that supply as well when we look out into 2022. Where do the Saudis and where do the Russians, speaking of the wonderful Jurgen book, where do they, where's their optimal oil price? I mean, I know Mr. Putin is going to say higher, 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 but where's their best price? Well, I, I just want to remind everyone that remember in the 2000s during that structural bull market, they go the best price is 22 to $28 a barrel. Yep. Boom, you're at 35. Oh, best price is 35. I don't think they know, and I don't think we know. 
Um, I just want to remind people that structural repricing that occurred in 0506, everything repriced, and we saw structural repricing in 2015 to the downside. Um, we're in the cusp of one of those happening. We may be in it. It feels like it in terms of looking at what's going on in all the other markets. It starts to become very difficult right. to pinpoint where that cost structure is. Let's go Chicago with Jeffrey Curry, teaching for years at the University of Chicago, legendary in their microeconomics, which is the oxygen of Chicago. Jeff, you and I know there's a general equilibrium theory, a Marshallian cross of oil supply and demand. There's a misunderstanding by the public of how sensitive, how tight those elasticities, those responsivenesses are. Are we in a new equilibrium or is it the same old, same old? It's the same old, same old, but the underlying cost that's associated with that same old, same old is the one that's really uncertain. Let me give you an example Please. of this. Um, it's 2012. I was talking to one of our private equity clients. They valued a Canadian asset at $120 a barrel. It had an internal rate of return of 20%. Then 14 and 15 happened. What? Oil collapsed from 120 down to 45. The dollar um, ripped from 1.4 on the euro to 1.05. Iron ore crush, copper crush, Canadian dollar smashed. Um, we're sitting at $45 a barrel. You went back to that same asset and revalued it. What was the IRR? 21, 22%. Everything repriced during that environment. And that's why it's really difficult when we say, all right, is there something different about right. this? this? This uh, equilibrium, yeah, it's really what what are the prices attached to it. For those of you taking notes on radio in at home on TV, I must say what you just heard from Dr. Curry there was brilliant. But do we have that same formula, that same reaction function now, or if we cut prices so much to a new efficiency, Jurgen alludes to this in the new map, that the techno technological leap isn't there anymore to cut costs if we see price pressure? Well, I gave you the example to the downside. Now this one is moving to the upside like in 05. I don't have you a good private equity example for 05 when it repriced to the upside um, because they weren't active in this space back then. But I, but I think when, in terms of what's going on right now is costs are rising. I like to point out we have Wall Street sanctioned cost inflation going on with companies, particularly ones that don't follow um, stringent ESG type um, strategies. So um, we're in an environment in which costs are inflated. Let me just give you an idea why a weaker dollar creates upward cost structure. Let's take like copper. 45% of copper's production costs are local in Chile. And when we have the dollar weakened and the Chilean peso begin to strengthen, what happens to the cost of producing copper? It goes up almost immediately the minute the dollar begins to weaken. Even places like Colombia or Canada where we mm -hmm. produce oil, that cost structure starts to creep up very quickly with a weakening dollar. And then you get what we call the reflationary feedback loop. So what you have a weak dollar puts upper pressure on commodities, higher commodity prices lead to greater global liquidity. Let me emphasize Saudi's um, excess reserves went up in the month of November by 10 billion. So what happens? That excess liquidity gets lent out, creates more demand for commodities and the whole cycle re you know, goes up and you get that okay. reflation. But there's a circuitous function here that leads to this optimism of price and just the, the microcosm of it helping push prices up. Does it lead to a commodity bull market or is it a lift off the great commodity recession? 
Um, I would argue this is a this is a structural bull market. And you know, you play Dwight Anderson, you know, talking about you know the type of tailwinds you have going on. You have structural underinvestment in supply, similar to what we had 20 years ago, but turbocharged because of COVID prices going negative and the fact that you have the ESG overlay on it. Second, you have policy-driven demand, redistributional policies, green CapEx, all of that fueling a structural upward shift in demand. And then the third one is you have that tailwind of a weak dollar that really creates inflationary feedback. Is American big oil ready for your scenario? Um, part of the reason why we're bullish from a supply perspective is they're not there. You know, looking at, you know, you know the Permian, um, the activities of the big super majors around the world have come off tremendously. You know, there's an ESG component there, but there's also just, hey, returns weren't that great. So the bottom line, yes, there is definitely, um, you know, the makings here for, you know, a, a very strong bull market. And it, the interest in some of these companies, they may be, but they're moving forward in a very different direction. So this is really important. I don't want you to take over David Costin's shingle here, but bringing over the commodity perspective of Curry over to the equity market application of Costin, can you advise David Costin to be overweight energy even after the lift off the bottom? Um, we want to be overweight commodities. And the one thing that separates commodities from you know, financial assets is financial assets, they anticipate the future. Um, commodities are spot assets, and they, they pick up as a hedge against potential inflation, the unanticipated physical moves in the real economy. So as we think you're gonna physically take off with the vaccination um, improvement in economic activity in the second quarter, you're going to want to be long spot assets, real assets. So we must prefer, you know, the the the, the commodity as opposed to the commodity-related equity. Well, I just need to revisit this, Dr. Curry. One final question: If you look at the break in commodities off of 08, and this is the glide path that we've seen through a decade, to be clear here, you're calling for a reaffirmation of a commodity bull market. Without question. And I mean, again, I want to emphasize, you know, this ship has sailed. If you look at all the classic, you know, telltale signs of a structural bull market, you have the, the weak dollar, grain prices. We didn't even talk about grain prices. You know, I had a client call corn, Bitcoin recently. Um, and then you have what's going on in the metals markets. Overlay that. And the kicker is the global liquidity is beginning to rise because that's the mm-hmm. oil to the machine that really starts that reflationary feedback loop. Jeff Curry, hugely informative. Thank you so much with Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.